listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're speaking with Tim Stewart. Tim is an international educator. He's lived in France and has taught in Turkey and Switzerland. After being the principal of a New Mexico school serving Native Americans, Tim was one of the first to earn a PhD as a Gates Millennium Scholar. As head of school in Jakarta, he was introduced to professional learning communities by Rick Dufour. Tim has used professional learning communities to create exemplary schools in Singapore and now in Ethiopia. Tim's first book for Solution Tree, Global Perspectives, outlines the use of professional learning communities in international schools. In 2013 and 2014, as he was visiting great schools and compiling this edited volume, Tim had the insight that four questions that guide teacher collaboration in a professional learning community could also be asked by students, and that this would help create both highly effective schools that get kids into college and progressive schools that value student agency and collaboration. In this podcast, Tim talks to Tom about the journey, his three collaborators, and why he thinks Professional Learning Communities 2.0 is a big deal. Let's listen in. Hey, Tim Stewart, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Tim, it's a treat to have you on. We've been on uh, on this parallel journey for a couple decades. I think it started with Ron Pollander at Rehoboth Christian School in, uh, in New Mexico. Yeah, that's correct. We applied and received a Bill and Melinda Gates uh, grant uh, to do some interesting work on the reservation, and uh, you were a part of that process. And so that's kind of how our paths crossed first time. Um, that was an interesting grant um, that that partnered some uh, Christian schools and public schools around the country. Uh, so it was in Chicago. Um, and I think you guys were working with the Gallup Public Schools. That's right. Yeah, Gallup Public Schools and Zuni and, and some other ones around uh, New Mexico. Yeah, it was actually creating a, a learning network. Uh, so that was more than 15 years ago. But we were recognizing even back then that we would, be, we would be better if we worked together on some of these initiatives. And so that, that grant helped us bring these schools together. It was a great, great project for us. Tim, I think you were one of the first... Uh, scholars to to earn a uh, to all, go all the way through a PhD on the uh, Gates Millennium Scholarship Program. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was uh, one of the original uh, from the uh, the original cohort in year two thousand. Uh, received the Gates uh, Scholarship, uh, so I'm kind of a part of that. Uh, yeah, that original cohort of of Native American students. So really, since then, you have been. Uh, an international education leader. What what was it that was um, that kicked off your your now storied uh, leadership career as a, a international educator? Well, you know, I, I grew up overseas. Uh, my parents moved to France when I was four years old. So, international education or, or global education has always put, been a part, really, a part of my DNA for a long time. Um, the time that I spent in the United States, uh, getting my doctorate, and then and then working in, in New Mexico was really, in some ways, uh, a grounding experience for me. But really, my passion has been looking more at the global educational landscape and working in international schools around the world. Did uh, you start in Jakarta? What was was there an experience before that? 
Oh, yeah. No, I started early on. I started in Turkey. I taught there for a couple of years, then moved to Switzerland, was there for eight years at the Lausanne American School in Switzerland, and then uh, went to the U.S. for a little bit, uh, New Mexico including, and then went off to Jakarta, Jakarta International School, and then on to Singapore American School. So Jakarta, your uh, high school principal made some real progress in that high school. Uh, we've met up again in in Singapore when you were leading innovation for that big K-12 school. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that was, uh, was that the first school that where you introduced the professional learning communities or was that also part of the Jakarta story? Yeah, so Jakarta is where I was introduced to the professional learning community concept. And uh, I was uh, I was actually a pretty strong resistor at the time. I thought that I, you know, my job as a principal was to hire good teachers and let them do their thing. And then was introduced uh, by, you know, Rick Dufour and Becky Dufour and others uh, introduced me to this concept of professional learning communities. And from that point on, it's been a part of a really important part of my 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 career in essence. Uh, so we became an exemplar school in Jakarta, and then when I was hired as a high school principal in Singapore, also that became one of our objectives was to become an exemplar PLC school and creating a collaborative uh, a collaborative work environment where teachers are are constantly in conversations, learning focused conversations with each other. Sometimes these professional learning communities can become a, a bit insular, maybe insightful, but a bit. Insular and one of the big breakthroughs at Singapore was uh, the the plan to go visit uh, the best schools in the world. Where where did that originate? Well, it actually, you know, again, being an international school, you can fall into the trap of believing that you're the best and that you have these uh, test scores and learning results that are, that are off the charts and that you really, there's nothing that you can learn from anybody else. But then I, I actually picked up a book, uh, from Dr. Tony Wagner, uh, the global achievement gap. Uh, and I was really confronted with my own insular belief about, you know, thinking that just high AP and high IB scores was going to be enough to equip kids for the 21st century. And then had to really look at, you know, and my kids were now entering into high school at that time and going, my goodness, we are actually failing our kids. If we think that just get, getting perfect SAT scores is going to do it in the next, you know, the next century, we're, we're kidding ourselves. And that led me to, to head off and, and visit some of these schools that Dr. Wagner had mentioned in his book. That was kind of the first trip that I took with a colleague went to schools like the Met School in Providence, Rhode Island, and High Tech High, et cetera, uh, which kind of started this process of saying, uh-oh, we're, we're really in trouble here. We're not actually doing any of this. We're not actually being deliberate about, about uh, helping you know, future-proof our kids. Uh, and, then, and then with uh, Dr. Chip Kimball coming on board in, in Singapore, we really institutionalized this, uh, this R&D process, which allowed us to take over 100 teachers to over 150 different schools, ultimately. Yeah, what a remarkable experience. I know for both of us, visiting schools has really been not, not just uh, professionally important, but sort of life-changing, a real eye-opener in terms of what's important. And you really were able to to take the benefits of professional learning communities, the, 
the trust and insight uh, being developed in that structure and kind of supercharge it uh, by injecting school visits. Yeah, absolutely. It was it, it kind of took our, our professional learning community teams to a whole different level when we were introducing concepts uh, that were way outside of our of our normal sphere uh, and, and elevated the conversations to a, to a different level. So a couple of years ago, you and a group of colleagues published a, a book called Global Perspectives, Professional Learning Communities at Work in International Schools. What's the the headline thesis there. Well, the the idea that that, uh, that one of the roadblocks in international schools is that professional learning communities can seem like uh, a U.S. public school construct, and and as international educators who are already high performing, I would say high performing schools, we we tend to kind of brush some of these concepts aside and saying, you know, that's not valid for me. We already have you know high test scores. Uh, and so what I was trying to do is take the concepts that have been kind of popularized by people like Rick Dufour and Becky and Tom Maney and, and others, uh, Mike Matos and, uh, and others, that, and take these, these concepts that are tried and true in, in mostly North American schools and actually translate them for an international school context. And that was really the, the main purpose was to say, this is why, this is the big why for international schools. It's a, it's a different why than a U.S. public school, but the why is still valid. And why do we do this? And, and the impact that it has on student learning is still absolutely uh, valid and credible and powerful. There's probably a lot of people that uh, believe in, in collaborative uh, professional development. They, they may not be familiar with um, the four PLC questions. So I'll summarize those quickly. Um, what do we want all students to know and be able to do? Uh, how will we know it? How will we know if they learn it? Uh, how will we respond if some students do not learn? And how will we extend the learning for students who are already proficient? Um, you, you found that package to be an important set of questions, I take it? Absolutely. You know, and, and in fact, even if a teacher is working alone and in isolation, a good teacher should be asking those questions all the time anyway. So what is it that I want my student to know, my students to know and be able to do is a great question. That's that's backward design. That's whether you're using UBD model or, or other backward design models, it's just good practice. The power is when you're asking those questions in a collaborative team, it's forcing your, your team to focus on student learning and to do something about it when you have evidence that they're not getting it or that they already know it. It's a powerful construct that I, for any school and any teacher. And a, a few years ago when I visited uh, you in Singapore and as you were wrapping up that, that book on PLCs, you had this um, really interesting and important insight uh, about what might be the the next generation of uh, development around uh, PLCs. And that's really reframing the questions and uh, inviting students to ask uh, those same kind of questions. What do I know, understand, and, and be able to do? How will I demonstrate what I've learned? What will I do when I'm not learning? And what will I do when I've already learned it? Uh, what's the origin of that insight? Because it's, it's quite provocative and it's turned out to be uh, quite profound. 
Yeah, you know, so when we were when we were visiting these schools around the world, um, and and we ended up finding schools that fell into two different categories, uh, and we would uh, we we started classifying these schools as highly effective schools, the schools that were getting all the test scores that were able to get kids into selective universities, the kids were getting great SAT scores. They were highly effective schools, and and we were at SAS. Uh, a highly effective school at that time. You know, we were doing it all right in that sense. And then there were schools that were learning progressive schools. And these were schools that these kids were were doing project-based work. They had ownership of their own learning. They were focused on critical thinking and collaboration. But when you actually dug into what they actually knew and were able to do, they didn't actually do all that well on AP tests or SAT tests or uh, they didn't actually know how to do academic research. So they were very collaborative and they knew they were creative. They knew how to build bridges out of popsicle sticks, but they certainly didn't understand the math behind it. And we believe that ultimately the best schools, the schools that were doing it at the highest level, they were both highly effective and learning progressive. And we started identifying these trends. Like, so what are the common themes with these schools that are highly effective and learning progressive? And so in some ways, we found that the schools that were the most highly effective schools, they were the schools where they had collaborative teams of teachers who were actually asking and answering the four critical questions. What is it that we want students to know? And how are we going to know that they know it? And what are we going to do if they're not learning, et cetera? But then the schools that were highly effective and learning progressive, there was this sense that students were now a part of that conversation. They were a part of the dialogue. They were the ones taking ownership, having agency over their own learning, as well as this collaborative environment. Um, and so the, this, when we started breaking it down, we're, we started saying, asking, what, what are these schools? What are, what are the questions that these schools, these students are actually asking themselves? And it really boiled down to these four questions just asked from a student perspective. Now, again, they weren't exactly word for word, those questions, but it was an inquiry. It was a personalized inquiry process. When these students were going through their their project in their school, they were actually saying, what is it that I want to know? I'm wondering how things fly. I'm wondering why the sky is blue. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, they had all these wonderings. And that's basically question one asked from a student perspective. So that's basically how we ended up marrying these two constructs of being highly effective and learning progressive is these collaborative teams and now bringing students into that and giving students agency over their own learning so that they're now asking and answering these four critical questions for themselves. That insight turned out to be super important. And it's it's also the thesis of your new book uh, recently released by Solution Tree. It's called Personalized Learning in a PLC at Work Student Agency Through the Four Critical Questions. A great book. Re- read it on an airplane yesterday. It's, um, it's insightful. It's super practical. Uh, it's an easy read that I'd recommend for uh, teachers and leaders. Um, you wrote it with kind of an all-star crowd, uh, starting with your good friend Sasha Heckman. Uh, where did you guys connect? Well, Sasha, at the you know, a couple of years ago, Sasha was the high school principal at the Shanghai American School, and 
we ended up at a lot of conference, conferences together over in Asia, you know, and, and realized that we were actually speaking the same language and having the same kind of passion. So at some point, Sasha and I decided that, you know, I was working on this book project kind of on my own and, and Sasha was working on another project on his own. And we decided to join forces uh, together and, uh, and, and kind of do this work together and align our language uh, with each other. Sasha comes from the public school system in, uh, in California and was a strong advocate for professional learning communities in that school district as well. So we had both a, a progressive, innovative bent, but with the, the foundations of professional learning communities uh, as practitioners. And to round out the team, uh, you, you added probably the two best guys on uh, response to intervention, Mike Mattis and Austin Buffum. Uh, what was the connection there? Well, you know, Mike and Mike and Austin have have been uh, PLC and RTI scholars for a very long time, authors, and you know, reading all of their books. And they're the kind of people that, if we were going to kind of tether this construct to professional learning communities, it, it, and as you know, young practitioners, we needed we needed a team that uh, had some credibility in that world. Uh, I, I knew Austin Buffum uh, from a long time ago. He's really one of my mentors when it comes to professional learning communities. And so approached him to see if he would be interested in joining the project. And uh, he, he approached Mike and uh, we became a very, it was a, you know, eclectic, uh, thought provoking, amazing team. Uh, you know, they, they made us this they made this book a better book no doubt about it and uh, and we pushed their thinking and they pushed our thinking in a lot of different ways and so ended up being a really strong collaborative team one of the things i like about this book is there's a magic chart um, on page 52 the uh, about 80% of the content in the book is is really nicely um visually depicted um, it shows how RTI and PLC come together. Uh, some people might not connect those two ideas, but uh, what, what was the insight to view those two as, as really critical, um, critical allies in student learning? Yeah. You know, if you, if you're looking at, uh, the RTI construct and the tiers of intervention, that is basically your response, a team's response to question number three. What are we going to do if a student, if there's evidence that a student is not learning? That's where the RTI process kicks in. And so the first line is, is your tier one intervention, which is basically your classroom teacher intervention. What am I as a teacher going to do to help this child? I'm going to reteach the lesson. I'm going to teach it in a different way. I'm going to give the student more time. And then there's a tier two intervention, which is now that collaborative team saying, what are we as a team going to do to help this child learn? And then there's tier three intervention, which is a systemic type of intervention. But that's all in response to question three of the PLC the PLC question three, which is what are we going to do when there's evidence that a child's not learning? Where the, the RTI and PLC overlap with personalized learning is so often there's, there's, we have these student of concern meetings and the one person who is not in the room when we have these student of concern meetings 
is the student. And, and a part of personalizing learning is saying how powerful, it's even more powerful when the child is saying, what am I going to do when I have evidence that I am not learning, right? So you're taking it and you're bringing the student voice and you're allowing the student to personalize their own intervention at that time. And as we know from the research, you know, John Hattie, et cetera, we, we, when students take ownership of their own learning, learning increases. And so, yes, it's powerful to have a collaborative team of teachers saying, what are we going to do for this child when he is not learning? But it's even more powerful when you bring that child into the conversation saying, okay, but now I want to be a part of the solution as well. I have to devise my own independent learning plan as well. In chapter six on uh, personalized learning, you identified three shifts that schools must make from traditional classrooms to learning hubs, from lockstep curriculum to personalized pathways, and from uh, a set pace to personal progressions. Maybe you could say a word about each of those. Yeah, so the, the, you know, what we have found is if we are going to personalize learning uh, in both the personalized learning, both in the progression and in the pathway, which we believe both, are, both approaches to personalization are required, then we really are, are starting to, it is becoming more and more necessary to have, uh, to, to kind of break down the walls and move to a learning hub model of education where there are more opportunities for flexibility, the fle flexible grouping uh, and, and uh, more teachers, more resources available to, to support moving more towards that micro teaching model uh, as opposed to a lecture model and, and variety of different groupings. So we're really seeing that the schools that are, that are moving towards personalization are moving towards hub models, which really moves your PLC collaborative team from an asynchronistic model. Let's, we're meeting every Wednesday morning for an hour to talk about students to a synchronistic. We're meeting all of the time. We're always asking these four questions. What is it that we want these kids to know and be able to do, et cetera, all of the time. So it's synchronistic. It's a you're constantly having these PLC, you're asking and answering these PLC questions. So that's kind of the reason for the hub model, these modern learning environments, which is, um, uh, I think, going to be necessary as we move down this path. And then um, personalized learning uh, pathway is really something that we've seen a lot of already. This is your your 20% Google time, this is your passion project, your senior capstone catalyst project, where, where students are entirely asking and answering the questions. And I mentioned that, you know, how do things fly, that type of question, where they are going on their personalized inquiry and they're asking the questions for themselves. What am I going to do when I'm stuck and I'm in the learning pit? And what am I going to do when I know it now? And what's my next step in my learning process? So kids understanding the learning process and going through that, but really that that pro the, the, the personalized learning pathway is content agnostic, if you will. It doesn't matter what they pursue. It could be something in, you know, aeronautical engineering, but it could also be something in the humanities. It can be, you know, I want to write a historical fiction novel or I'm interested in, in uh, designing an engineering product, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, that's a, a deep approach to learning where now we're focusing on the, 
uh, a variety of different skills like collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, innovation, all of these kinds of skills that are more 21st century, so-called 21st century skills. But then there's the personalized progression, and that takes personalization to a whole new level. And the personalized progression is where the students are now, the, the curriculum, if you will, is set. It's set by the state. It's set by the country. It's, it's, it's your common core standards. It's your, your C3 framework, your NGSS, whatever framework you're using. Those things are set. And, and the, the criteria, what proficiency means at each one of those standards, for each one of those standards, is already established by the collaborative team and by the state or whatever. The difference now is that the students are responsible for the pace of their learning. or So they are now progressing down that continuum when they are ready. And they can demonstrate mastery of whatever standard they've identified. So they're the ones identifying the next standard. They're the ones identifying when they're going to demonstrate mastery of that next standard, of that standard, and then moving on to the next one. So it's a different type of personalization. But to do that, now you're really having to mess with the school construct, right? Because you, you're moving away from this cohort model where all kids are learning approximately the same thing at the same time, having their common formative assessment on the same day, and then their summative assessment on the same day, to now an asynchronistic approach where the child is saying, I'm ready to show you that I know this, and this is how I'm going to show you that I know it. Right? It's a very, very different model. And if we're looking at the world in general, the world is moving towards this personalized progression model in most every aspect. Schools have just not made that leap yet. I thought that was a, a great summary. Um, and it, uh, your description just brought to mind a couple of spring uh, visits here in the States to Albemarle in Charlottesville, Virginia, and into Lindsay, California, small districts that uh, have really transformed uh, teacher practice, the tool set, and even the physical space, as, uh, as you described. And it, it's really exciting when systems can fully align these practices, tools, and learning environments the way you described in, uh, in Chapter 6. Yeah, it is exciting. And when you when you start seeing the level of engagement that students have, when they are able to, in some ways, you know, we're, we're breaking down this construct that we've always relied on that actually doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work because it, it's, it's not be, that it doesn't work. It's just that it's impossible to do this whole idea of differentiation. We, you know, and a, a great teacher is able to differentiate maybe at three levels. Uh, the superstar teachers. And, and what we're saying is, no, it's actually not, it shouldn't be differentiating at three levels, you know, the fast kids, the medium kids, and the slow kids, but it's differentiating at 22 levels, right? And so in order to do that, because every child learns differently in a different way in a different time, we've got to allow kids to personalize learning so that they are the ones in control of their own learning. So it's no longer differentiation, it's personalization. And we have to make that flip. And that, that flip is really about agency. Who has who controls the learning? Is it the teacher or is it the child? And, and that's basically the big argument that we're making uh, in this book. Well, you also make clear that personalized learning is a team sport, right? That for too long, we've expected really way too much from individual teachers and, and, and ask them to operate within the sort of bizarre constraints of this age cohort 
system. But if if you make the changes that you've suggested of breaking down the walls, sort of literally and figuratively, inviting students to be, you know, co uh, constructors of learning pathways and, and really allowed them to move as they demonstrate mastery uh, that that you, you really can transform learning. Absolutely, 100%. And the schools that we call highly effective learning progressive schools are schools that have this collaborative culture fully in place. It's a where teachers are working together uh, to to ensure that kids are learning at the highest level, and we're all we're doing is saying now we need to bring the students into that conversation. This, this, the, those conversations have been very effective with the PLC conversations, if you will, have been very effective by teams of teachers asking and answering the questions. And now we're saying the students, in order to take that level of engagement to another level with students, they've got to be now a part of the. The collective responsibility, that's one of the phrases we use in PLCs, is that we are collectively responsible for the learning of our children. And now we're saying that idea of collective responsibility has got to include students as well. Uh, Tim, I I thought you guys did a great job uh, summarizing the thesis of the book in the epilogue. It says, what matters most is providing students with learning environments that foster high levels of learning and engagement for all students. By bringing students into the PLC conversation, we can truly give students the ability to take concrete, measurable steps to increase their learning. Great, great summary of, uh, of, uh, of a great book. Yeah, thank you. Um, tell me about your, your first year in, in Addis Ababa. Um, I, I'm curious about how much of uh, your insights into into PLCs you you were able to share with your your new colleagues in in Ethiopia. You know, so so there's no no it's no secret where I stand uh, philosophically. You know, with uh, some of my publications. So I think when the school hired me, they they certainly knew uh, what I believed and 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 my past uh, experiences and and where I was likely to to lead the school. So I think that. The school was very deliberate in bringing somebody in uh, like me that that is passionate about collaboration and and uh, all the, the constructs of the PLC, and so that is that has been very very well received, uh, and and we're and, and there was always really a collaborative culture at the school. We're just offering a little bit more guidance into what kind of collaboration really has impact on student learning. So that's been kind of our journey. This year, but we're also doing some really interesting things in terms of setting ourselves up to allow uh, learning to be even more personalized than uh, than before. And so we've we've created a five. uh, So at the end of next school year, the last five weeks of schools, we are going to have a a K-12 personalized learning experience for the last five weeks of the school year. So every student will be engaged in a personalized learning experience for the last five weeks of school. And we've created an R&D team uh, of two elementary school uh, teachers, two middle school teachers, and two high school teachers with uh, a, a support network of administrators to, to support them. I've given them 50% release time next year. So they're going to be teaching one day and, and off and collaborating on this project the other day. They're going to be visiting schools around the world. Uh, and we're going to be designing this this five week experience. Uh, so it's going to be very exciting, very cutting edge, 
Uh, and and we're going to, you know, it's going to be an iterative process. It won't be perfect uh, right off the bat, but we've decided to just to go for it and to, to see if we can take uh, that the learning to another level in terms of personalization. That's really exciting. I don't think I've ever heard of that sort of an approach. Um, it's really a school-wide pilot, right? It's a school-wide pilot. Um, and, and really what it, what it came down to is we, it was kind of fortuitous that we ended up changing our calendar. Uh, we moved our calendar. So we're starting a couple weeks later next year and we're ending a couple of weeks later. But as an IB school, that's always a problem, right? We end up adding uh, days after the IB exam. Uh, and the big question is, well, what are we going to do and how are we going to solve this problem? How, you know, these kids need to, to prepare for their IB exams. And so we've kind of seized on that opportunity to create this sandbox, if you will, this five-week sandbox after the IB exams to, to start personalizing learning. And we're incorporating things that are already a part of the IB that are personalized learning. PYP has a fifth grade exhibition uh, in, in, uh, with the IB program. And so we're, this is incorporating the PYP exhibition. The IB extended essay is also a personalized learning experience. We're incorporating that into this. Uh, so there'll be research components to it. There'll be uh, both personalized learning pathways and personalized learning progressions as a part of this experience. So we're, we're excited to see where, where we end up. It'll be grassroots in terms of being developed by teachers uh, for our students. That's really exciting. It, uh, I, I remember a year and a half ago when, when you were planning uh, your, your entry there, you, I thought you described beautifully a vision of not just being a good school in Africa, but a, but a great school for Africa. Uh, is that still part of the vision? Yeah, you know, and, and I think it's even developed since then. Uh, you know, the, this international schools tend to have a best in vision. We want to be the best school in Africa or we want to be the best school in the world. And that's, that tends to be where we land uh, in, in a lot of our vision statements. And, and I've really believed that with the, with the context that we are at uh, with Africa, or, or to have a vision that is more for Africa, not being the best school in Africa, but being the best school for Africa is closer aligned to really the heart of our school. But as I've been there now for a year and had a lot of conversations with community members, we seem to be moving towards this notion that even four has more of a patriarchal, colonial kind of, we know and we're going to give you, we know best and we're going to give you, we have and you don't. So it's kind of a, a patriarchal or colon, uh, colonial approach. So we're moving more towards being the best school with Africa. And that's kind of where we're, our, we haven't officially formalized that yet, but that's part of our ethos is, is now kind of saying, isn't it even more powerful to be the best school with Africa or with our world as opposed to for? Uh, so that's been an iterative process as well. Yeah, it's a, such an important insight. Um, yeah, I'm really walking alongside the the communities that you serve, and you you serve such a an interesting and diverse community there, both um, Ethiopians and a rather complex NGO environment. 
Absolutely. Addis Ababa is the host of the African Union. So all of the diplomats that serve for the African Union, for USAID, for the Peace Corps, for Save the Children and Food for the Hungry, all of these organizations that serve Eastern Africa have their headquarters in in Addis Ababa. So those are the, the people we serve. Dr. Tim Stewart, we uh, we really appreciate your leadership in international education. Uh, you, this is a, your second great book on professional learning communities. Love the critical insight of turning those questions around and inviting students to become active agents of their own learning. I, I think this book uh, is a really important one for the field. It's called Personalized Learning in a PLC at Work Student Agency Through the Four Critical Questions. Order it now. Tim, it's great to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. It was great talking to you. A big thanks to Tim for taking time to talk with Tom. And thank you to the listeners for tuning into the podcast today. If you're looking to learn more about innovations in learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. And make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We'll be launching season four soon, and you won't want to miss it. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.